Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? It's great. Uh, great to see you. Great to see everyone over in the traditional service, those of you guys who are online. Uh, it's great to be with you. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, uh, my name is Steve. It is uh, great to be home. I was, uh, yeah, it's been really good. I was on staff here for a really long time. Uh, which I know some of you guys are like, are you like 14? Yeah, I basically started here when I was like born, you know. But essentially, it's been really amazing just kind of going on this journey over the past year of my life. Last week, I was up in the East Bay preaching at a church. And I was telling them that I'm a pastor at Valley Christian Schools. And uh, this person came up to me after the service. And he was like, hey, I just need you to know that I went to a rival school of yours. So I automatically hate you. Um, <laughs> And I was like, I get that a lot, you know, it's great. Um, but it really got me thinking about this idea of rivalry. And when it comes to sports, it's something that is incredibly uh, innocent. And it made me really think about human nature and really how our longing to belong actually hardwires us towards people who are like us. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, and in some ways, what happens is begin, as we begin to embrace some of those rivalries, while they're innocent when it comes to sports, that when we kind of expand it on beyond sports, we start to see that it creates a barrier between us. And so there's actually a book by a guy named Will Blythe, and he writes about the amazing rivalry between Duke and North Carolina. I think I have a photo of the cover coming here soon. Oh, there you go. Right, and, uh, and the cover of this book is, says this. It says, to hate like this is to be happy forever. The thoroughly obsessive, intermittently uplifting, and occasionally unbiased account of the Duke-North Carolina rivalry, right? Doesn't that sound like a book that you just want to look at, right, want to read? And now again, when it comes to sports, this is incredibly innocent. But what we see in what we've experienced in our world is that when we begin to see that this is leveraged in us, when we start to see that it becomes manipulated, this kind of rivalry can become destructive. Do you know what I'm talking about? And one of the things I actually love about this cover that we see here is that it actually comically reveals a little bit about how this idea of tribalism works in our hearts, doesn't it? We see this grotesque uh, kind of caricature of Coach K. He kind of looks kind of crazy, but if you actually look him up, he actually looks like the Count to me, like from Sesame Street. But anyway, that's, a little, that's neither here nor there. But anyway, what you do is that you take somebody and you kind of create this caricature of the person to make them look evil, right? Have you seen that happen before? And what it calls out is even some of the underlying biases that kind of blind us to our ability to critique ourselves. And it's not just within these sports cultures. We kind of see it as part of our humanity. And so Rebecca Bugler of University of Texas, she created this experiment in which she took a bunch of students. And during a summer program, she put some people in red shirts, some people in uh, blue shirts, some people in yellow shirts. And she told all of the teachers and the managers of the program, make sure that you treat everybody exactly the same. And at the very end of the summer, what they asked was they asked every one of the students, please describe the other students who are part of their program. And this was something that ended up becoming really interesting because oftentimes the kids who were wearing their same colored shirt were the people who were smarter, they were funnier, they were faster, they were more likable, they were nicer. And one of the things that she concluded was that we kind of thought for a long time that these biases and these prejudices, prejudices are something that are taught and then passed on. But what they discovered was actually that there is something inherent in our nature that gravitates to the people who are like us. 
And in another similar experiment, one of the things that they did with the, with the same thing, the red shirts and the blue shirts, is that when they asked these kids, please describe the other kids on the, t- on, on the other team, one of the interesting things that they began to notice was that these other kids would begin creating these narratives and these storylines about kids that they didn't even know about. And it's so amazing to me because this is something that we experience at Hume. So you guys came back to Hume, right? Automatically you get there, you're in like a yellow shirt, you're in a blue shirt, and they're like, now go fight. All right, I'm just kidding. That doesn't happen at Hume. Although occasionally, maybe it did. Jeff, we we experienced that when we were both youth pastors here. But one of the interesting things is Bigler says that our brains are like a 250-piece puzzle set. And what she says is that we automatically begin kind of categorizing things when we look at a puzzle and we're like, okay, how do things fit together? And what ends up happening is that when something doesn't fit in our mind, when something is incongruent with our thinking, we begin to fill the gaps and reconstruct that scenario and a storyline so that it makes sense in our minds so that we can start to see how all of it connects. And we actually do this in our relationships with one another. And so when there is something that we can't understand or someone that we can't categorize, they don't fit nicely into a little box, we begin to fill in the gaps in order to make up for that dissonance. We've experienced this all before. Have you guys ever gone to a store and then you see that kid who's misbehaving, right? They're throwing a fit. They're rolling on the ground. What are you doing? You're doing exactly what I do. You're making up the storyline about the parents and the kind of home that they grow in, right? You're like, okay, what's going on here, right? And true confession here, um, I'm an A's fan, so I do, I'm sorry, okay? Like, this is the way that it is, but when I see somebody in, like, a Giants hat, I automatically assume that you don't actually like baseball. You just enjoy the amenities of the Giants stadium, okay? There's, like, a Coke slide and, you know, flushing toilets, okay? They don't have that at the Oakland Coliseum, but you know what? Like, I, I confessed it. I moved on. It's okay, But we all know what this is like because the whole point is that there's something within our humanity that when it doesn't fit neatly in our categories or something that we don't understand, we create these narratives and assumptions about the kind of person that they are. Does that make sense? Now, what's interesting is that when we get into this, before we get too deep, I really have to distinguish this kind of tribalism that we see in its negative sense from the natural human instincts that we have to belong. We know that tribes are a natural part of our human story. We think of indigenous tribes. Uh, Our family got a chance to go to Scotland this summer, and we learned all about the clans and how people kind of grouped together in order to survive. So that's a normal part of who we are. We tend to draw ourselves towards people with similar experiences and backgrounds, and we actually seek people out who experience the same thing, don't we? Is there anyone here who is not from California? Not from California? Okay, where are you guys from? From Texas, welcome to California. You have chosen wisely, right? Is there anybody else from Texas? Yeah, see, like, so so other people, oh, look, all right on the same row. And one of the things that you guys have begun to notice as we begin to kind of share these common stories is that immediately there's kind of a bond. Did you guys know each other before you guys? See, like, immediately there's probably some things that you guys can go back to, like, is it Bucky's or what, you know, there's like a big gas station that's like the size of a mall, right? Like, I went to Texas for the first time. I was like, what is this? There's an immediate bond that, like, immediately when, like, Texans get together, they're like, yes, like, big food and, like, lots of trucks and gas stations that are, like, ginormous, right? It's a shared experience. It's something that we all naturally gravitate to. But there's something that I believe that happens when sin enters in the picture. Because when sin enters into the picture, sin actually corrupts all this human natural desire to belong. And we begin to form around these ideological tribalisms. 
And what we see is that when ideologies become idols, it ends up separating us from the full relationship that we desire with God and the relationship that we get from one another. It's the kind of tribalism that creates an us versus them mentality. It's the kind of tribalism which we try and sniff out the people that we meet in order to determine which side they are on by what they post and what they don't post, who they like and who they don't like. It's the red and blue shirt mentality in which we begin creating narratives to fill in the blanks for what we don't understand. And so Amy Chua from Yale says that this tribalism lies at the heart of the division that we see today. And it eliminates our ability for real community and meaningful relationships. And the truth is that we are all guilty of it. And she said that there are different ways that we can begin to really address this idea of tribalism. She says that when you go to the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment would say, hey, just give them more information and then they'll figure it out. But the truth is that information is easily dismissed. It can be something that we can just disregard or if it doesn't match up with our brains, we end up kind of moving on. Or the other thought is that we just simply get our tribe into power. But what happens is that this ends up creating more tribes and more factions. But the good news is that none of this is surprising to God. Last week, Pastor Dale talked about this idea of friendship and who is actually carrying our mat. And I love that we get to pick that up today, that really what Jesus offers us in this passage that we get in today is a life beyond the trap of tribalism. And he doesn't do it by trying to change a culture with force or by creating a bigger platform, but really it's an invitation into his new vision for community. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. If you've got an analog Bible like myself, halfway through your Bibles, flip right past the Hebrew names, slow down when you get to the names that you would name your children, Matthew, Mark. We're in the book of Mark chapter 2. And we're going to be in verse 13. So if you have your scriptures, uh, join me as we dive into the word of God. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. You see, the reality of what we see when we get into this passage is that this tribalism that we have today was something that existed in Jesus' day. In fact, if you were to turn back the clock and look at the first century, you will see that the first century was just as divided as it is today, if not even worse. So it was divided socioeconomically between the rich and the poor. It was divided ethnically and racially between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you guys read the gospel, you see this weird tension. It's divided uh, religiously and politically between the Jews who were cozy with the political power of the Roman Empire, like the Sadducees. And between those who were the conservative Pharisees who believed that personal piety and holiness and creating a a society in which they were to go back to the Old Testament, that they would begin to start to see the arrival of the Messiah. But it gets even more complicated than that. Because if you go back to the first century, there were a string of people who came and they claimed to be the Messiah. And they built these huge platforms and they gathered all of these followings, but eventually they would become a big letdown. And more often than not, they were killed along with all of their 
followers. And so there is a lot of caution anytime somebody comes in and he starts to claim, hey, I've got the way of God and you are to follow me. And so there's all of these various ideologies that we see here in the background of this passage. There were some who embraced Roman culture. They were the Hellenistic Jews who just said, you know what, we should just make the most of our situation. Let's do what we can to survive. And then there were those who lived in opposition to Roman culture who were actively fighting against the Romans like the zealots, right? It's where we get the word zealous from, right? They're like passionate. And then there were some who withdrew from Roman culture altogether. They were called the Essenes. They ended up just moving out into the desert. They ended up becoming the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you guys have ever known or ever heard of that, like these people withdrew from Roman culture. But then here we have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are probably a group of people that we are the most familiar with. And unfortunately, they get a little bit of a bad rap, okay? When we think about the Pharisees, we often think of them, you know, as a bit of this, like, Jafar figure, okay? If you guys have seen them uh, from Disney, you have Jafar, and he's got, like, a little staff, and he wants to ruin everybody's life, right? That's how we think of them. But really, for them, they get a bad rap because what they were desired and what they wanted was actually pretty good. What they desired is that they wanted Israel to go back to their theocratic roots to say, you know what, we're going to submit our lives to God and God would place a king over us and they would rule with justice and righteousness. But their thinking was this, was it because God cannot be around sin, the only way that God would send his Messiah is if we change the culture towards holiness to make the world clean enough so that the Messiah can come and make his home with us. Does that make sense? And so there's this underlying question from everyone when it comes to Jesus. And that question is, whose side are you on? Which tribe are you a part of? Are you an Hellenist? Are you a zealot? Are you like the Pharisees? And in typical Jesus fashion, he offends everyone equally. To the conservatives, he was seen eating with and drinking with sinners like we see here. And so everyone must assume, you know what? He's a hedonist. He just loves to be with the parties and all the people. To the extremists, Jesus was actually interacting with Romans. He ended up healing a centurion uh, servant. So everyone must have assumed, well, you know what, Jesus? You must be a Hellenist. You must be fully on the side of becoming Greco-Roman. And to the Hellenistic Jew, he was talking about the selling of possessions and love for their neighbors. So everyone must have assumed that he was a hippie, right? (laughs) Kidding, right? But the truth is that to every party and every ideology, the gospel will offend equally because it requires denying yourself and dying to yourself in order to embrace the life that God desires for us. You see, Jesus was not presenting another philosophy or another way of life. There were plenty of those. He wasn't presenting another ideology that we like and we subscribe to. But he was actually offering a holistic submission to God's plan that was established from the very beginning. And so what we see here is that Jesus begins to establish his identity as the long-awaited Messiah that was promised and looked towards throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. And he did it through his mission, he did it through his message, he did it through his authority, and he did it through his actions. And we see it right here in this passage. In the passage that Dale unpacked last week in Mark chapter 2, all of the leaders are cautiously watching Jesus as he goes and he forgives and he heals a paralytic man which becomes a marker of Jesus' messianic mission. And one of the things that's really interesting as I work with people is they often will say, you know, well, how do we know that Jesus was God? Because he never claimed that he himself was God. But the truth was that Jesus claimed he was God all the time. He just did it in a very Jewish way. And we see it in the passage that we saw last week. Because one of the things that Jesus says is like, hey, who can forgive but God alone? 
right? And they would say, well, only God can do that. And the very next thing that Jesus does is he heals and he forgives the man of his sin. So what does that mean? If I can do something that only God can do, that probably means that I am also God. And so here we start to see, again, an extension of Jesus' mission and his identity, which is the authority to teach. And so in verse 13, if you're like a Bible circler or underliner, circle the word, he began to teach them. Because we are only one and a half chapters into the book of Mark, and already four times we see these different references to Jesus' teaching, right? We start to see that Jesus began to teach, that people were amazed at his teaching, that he taught with authority. And here we see that Jesus began to teach yet again. And one of the interesting things about this is that if Jesus' identity as the Son of God is to teach, then our posture is to learn. If Jesus came to teach, it is our posture to learn which is pretty amazing to me because now I'm in the world of education, which is funny because I'm a very average student, okay? Um, But now I'm in the world of education, and one of the things I've kind of learned in just being in education is that really learning has less to do with intelligence and has everything to do with humility. And because I don't understand education, I understand coaching. I'm a lacrosse coach. And one of the things I've discovered is that the students and the, the players that are the most difficult to coach are those who don't think that they have anything to learn that it takes a certain amount of trust to say, you know what, I trust your coaching, I trust what you're seeing, and you know what, I am just gonna go out and do it. You see, it takes humility to put our full trust in the teaching and the way of Jesus. And the reason why people are amazed at his teaching is not just because he talked about it, not just because he posted about it, but because he lived it. And what we see next is one of the great lessons that we learn about the kingdom of God. Because it says in verse 14 that as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And again, if you circle words in your Bible, circle the word saw. And I love this because Jesus saw Levi before Levi saw Jesus. And it's a really kind of subtle language that we kind of see here is that often whenever we talk about God, I hear things like, well, I just need to go and find God. Or like, I need to go out there, out into the woods, and I need to seek him, and then I'm going to find him. But the reality when we read in the scriptures is that the good news of Jesus is that he has come to find us. And before we ever even start that search for God, God is the one who's coming to find us. And if you've ever wondered, does God see me? Does God know exactly what I'm going through? I love what it says right here because it's, again, this language in which God sees you. And I love that we don't find Jesus in the synagogue where we expect a holy person. We see Jesus in the marketplace. And not just any marketplace, but we find him in the crossroads of the most significant trade post in all of Judea. You see, Capernaum sat in this perfect little spot in which it was this crossroads between goods that were going north and south between Europe and Egypt and goods that were going east and west between Asia and the Mediterranean. And if you are a Roman citizen of this time, if you're the Roman government, what does a crossroads mean where all of this trade is coming? Taxes, right? And so what they did is they would send an entire army there to protect that place. It was something that was incredibly valued. But the Romans were smart. The Romans wouldn't go to a Roman soldier and say, hey, you Roman soldier, go and collect all of the taxes because it would cause a lot of strife. So what they would do is they would say, okay, we're going to offer this as a bid to the person, a Jew, a fellow Jew, who would want to offer the most amount of money to earn the right to be able to collect all of those taxes. You see, the Romans were a part of a system in which it was more like tax farming. And so the Romans would say, what we need from every single person is $20. But whatever you charge on top of that, you get to keep. And so if you were a tax collector, you could say, hey, you owe Rome $30. 
And you would pocket the 10, you would give 20 back to Rome, and this would become incredibly lucrative. But tax farmers, because of what they were doing, were actually hated, and they were ostracized from the moment they took the job. They were branded as traitors because they participated with the Romans. And so here, all of a sudden, we meet a guy sitting in a tax booth, and his name is Levi. We find out from Matthew's gospel that he is also called Matthew, which means a gift of God which means that Matthew or Levi was raised as a PK. You guys know what PKs are? Priest kids, okay? He was raised as a priest kid because the Levites were a priestly tribe, which means that he knew the scriptures, and it meant that he was probably smart enough to go on to the finest Jewish Ivy League schools, and he could have become a beloved rabbi, but somehow he uses his talent to become a tax collector. And so we see that He had studied all of the Torah. He had studied all of the scriptures, but he ended up becoming someone who collected taxes. So could you experience some of the shame he must have felt? And his entire world would be turned upside down with a two-word invitation from Jesus. And that two-word invitation in verse 14 is simply to follow me. To follow me. Imagine that when it says here, it says that, that Levi, it says that he got up, but really what we should read is that he jumped up. He left everything behind so that he can follow Jesus at a tremendous cost. Why? I think it's because he's experienced so much shame year after year of people looking at him with a side eye saying, you know what, you're a traitor. We are with the Romans. You don't deserve the kind of life that we have. But for Matthew, the invitation to be back in right relationship with God and with others was far greater than potential earning power. It was so much greater than prestige. And what's interesting is that this word get up is this word anastis, which actually is the root word of the word anastasi, which is what we actually translate the word resurrection from. And so for Matthew, when he is called by Jesus, he's ex- literally experiencing a resurrection from the dead. That here is my whole life. I've lived in shame. I've lived in ostracization. All of a sudden, Jesus comes and he invites him into community again, and he gets up right away because I believe that when he saw the opportunity for a new life, he jumped right at it, wouldn't you? It's a beautiful thing that we see here. You see, there's this debate that happens um, when, when we talk about Matthew. Because they're like, hey, is this Matthew the same Matthew who ended up writing the gospel of Matthew? And one of the reasons why I think that he is is because Matthew actually ends up quoting the Old Testament and connecting Jesus to the Old Testament scriptures more than any other person, any other writer of the gospel. And I think the reason why he's able to do that is because he's drawing from his background growing up in the Levitical tribe that all of a sudden his background on the other side of resurrection was able to become a stepping stone to Jesus. And we see that the pattern of this in his life happens right away because in the very next verse, we find that Jesus is in Matthew's house reclining with other tax collectors and sinners. And then we have to note that he was reclining because it is actually the posture of feasting. And the reason why this is important is because feasting was this image for the hope for recreation of Israel. It's a celebration of the Messiah coming to a time when God was going to restore all of the people back to himself. In fact, when this is going on, we kind of see this throughout the scriptures and throughout the prophets, but specifically in Isaiah 25. We start to see this idea that when the Messiah comes, there's supposed to be celebration. And so in Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, it says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy death, uh, destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his, uh, the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And so when we look at this table, the table becomes a symbol of restoration and recreation and invitation and belonging. It's why this idea of the table is going to be so big in the ministry of Jesus. It's why we get to celebrate communion in a little bit, in which we are invited to the table. Because when we take communion, we're participating in this recreation and in this belonging, in which we are reunited with God. But because Jesus is actually feasting with people that they didn't think that Jesus would feast with, for the Pharisees, it created the sense of dissonance. And so the Pharisees show up at the party, not to join the party because they're like, yes, Isaiah is happening right here before our eyes. But they show up to the party to determine what? Jesus, which tribe are you in? But can you blame them? Because to a Pharisee, they would have known Psalm 1. Blessed are those who do not walk with the wicked and do not sit in the seat of mockers. So when you're looking at Jesus, who's like this messianic figure, they're like, well, how can the Messiah be with all of these sinners when it says from Psalm 1 that like, we don't walk with those who are wicked? But then Jesus responds in verse 17 with this incredible verse. And he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And I love this because Jesus is actually pointing them back to the same scriptures that they would have studied in AP Jewish history. Like, they would have known all of this. They're like, did you forget what Isaiah, what all the prophets were talking about? That what God has been talking about from the very beginning throughout the whole story of the Bible, that what God desires is to lift the shroud of sin that blinds us, that separates us from the presence of God, to bind up those who are wounded, to impart honor on those who have felt disgrace. And to restore all people from all the earth back into relationship with himself. You see, from Jesus' perspective, there is only one tribe. And that tribe is for everyone who needs redemption and healing and recreation and new life. And guess what? Guess who needs all of that? All of us. Every single person needs that kind of healing and restoration. Those who are sick from self-righteousness and can't even see it, like the Pharisees. Those who are sick because of their ignorance in the fact that they don't think they even need God. And those who feel like they don't have their life together and that they'll never be able to earn their way back into relationship with God. There is a space at the table for everyone. And we see it in the very community that Jesus decides to wrap himself around. In fact, when we look at the 12 disciples in Mark chapter 3, which is the next verse, look at the people that Jesus surrounded himself with. His tribe is not from what you would expect. It says that these are the 12 that he appointed in verse 16. Simon, who he gave gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, he gave the name Boenergies, right? Like, think of the word energies. The sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, son of Alphaeus, Thetis, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, who betrayed him. Could you imagine getting a name like the sons of thunder? right? It has the word energies in it, which I just automatically go to middle school, okay? Like, so we think, hey, these guys were just loud and boisterous. No, they were just middle schoolers, okay? And then all of a sudden, you see some things that are really interesting here. We see Simon the Zealot. Remember, the Zealots were people who were actively working against Rome. In fact, they were known for carrying around these little daggers in which they would kind of do these, like, sneak attacks on Roman soldiers, And on the other opposite end of this, you have Matthew, who is this tax collector, who is a traitor, and yet somehow a traitor and a zealot found themselves at the table of Jesus with the same sense of belonging and connection because there was something about Jesus that invited them both to the table. So how did he begin to do this? 
Well, the first thing that we can see is that Jesus was actually more concerned with creating a culture and not just changing a culture. So often when we think about this, what we always think is like, hey, if I just go and like, let's go change the culture, right? And it means that we're going to go and take it by force. We're going to present better ideas. We're going to kind of send out clever tweets, whatever that is. But Jesus wasn't interested in that. What Jesus did was he grabbed together 12 people and he created a compelling community of invitation and belonging, a, a sense in which they were invited into a new way of life and created something that people wanted to be a part of. And then they began to invite others to be a part of it. Uh, I love that Matthew's house, uh, I love why Matthew's house was full. See, I think that Matthew's house was full is because as they started to see Matthew, Levi, start to change and his countenance start to change and new life get restored to him, they're like, gosh, I want to be a part of that. And what I love is that Jesus was actually exemplifying and creating a space for what would become one of the hallmark values of the early Christians. And it was hospitality. And what I love about hospitality is this Greek word, philoxenia, which literally means love for others. Philo, like the city of brotherly love, right? And xenia is the word for others. And you probably know it more from its opposite, which is xenophobia, right? The exact opposite, the fear of others. But what I love about what Jesus does when he goes to Matthew's house is he's actually practicing a reverse hospitality. Rather than saying hospitality is like you inviting you into my space where like, if you come to my house, I know what my house smells like, right? But it takes a lot more risk to go to somebody else's house. To say, hey, let's go to where you're comfortable. Let's go to where you are. And this is what Jesus actually practices. And so what we see that Jesus creates is that he creates a culture in which invitation also requires participation. You see, for Matthew, it wasn't just like, hey, Jesus, I love your ideas. I'm just gonna follow you from afar. But for, Jesus, for Matthew, it meant that his entire life would be turned upside down. It meant walking away from his way of life and humbly submitting to the way of Jesus and abandoning his old life. And I think that this is so important for us as we look at the teachings of Jesus because when we look at the teachings of Jesus, the temptation is for us to look at Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, you offer great advice. If it fits into my life, I'm gonna take it. But what Jesus is actually inviting us to is actually for our entire life to be changed and reoriented about and around him. We cannot keep our own definitions, our own expectations, and our own preferences for our way of life and embrace the life that Jesus desires for us. Later on, Jesus is going to talk about this idea of old and new wineskins. You guys will unpack that next week. And really, it's around this idea that when you take wine that's new and you pour it into a bag, and when it starts to ferment, if it's part of the old crusty leathers, like, it's going to burst. And so what Jesus says is that if you want new wine, you have to have new wineskins. You have to have a new mindset. And I love this when it's applied to the community of Jesus because this is what it meant for his community. That in order for Simon the Zealot to remain seated at the table of Jesus, it meant he had to see and treat Matthew the way that Jesus saw and treated Matthew. And for Matthew, it meant for him to stay at the table of Jesus that he had to see Simon the Zealot the way that Jesus saw Simon the Zealot. But the good news is that it's possible. The good news is that we saw this example that Jesus set before us is something that became so compelling in the early church. It's one of the reasons why the early church would become the very first multicultural, multilingual, uh, multi-ethnic uh, multi community of God. And it became one of the driving factors for the explosive growth that we see in the early church. And so here's a cool example of this, is that in the second century, there was a guy named Aristides. And Aristides would end up writing to the emperor Hadrian, and he would really testify 
to the conduct and the life that the Christians offered. And I want us for a moment just to read this and to imagine what it would be like if this was not said of the second century, but this was said of us. So this is what Aristides says to Hadrian. The Christians, O king, as we have learned from their writing, show kindness to those near them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is any of, among them that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Every morning and every hour, they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them and for their food and drink they offer thanksgiving to him. Assuredly, the race of Christians is more blessed than all the men who are on the face of the earth. This has been throughout the season of COVID, which has lasted now like a decade, something that I go and I revisit almost every single week because it makes me ask the question, when I start to feel dejected, when I start to feel like everything in the culture is exploding, and what do I do from here? I go back to this and say, God, I can't change a culture, but I can have this change me. And I ask myself, how do I begin to create this kind of environment in my home, in my workplaces, with my relationships right here? Because I can't change anything else. But what I can do is create a culture that's different from my life and simply invite other people into it. And so I want to offer just as we begin to think, how do we begin to apply this teaching to our life? Not just here and not just broader in California, right? But really right here in this room and right here in our very own life. And the first thing that we can do is that, the creating, that this idea of creating a culture of Jesus actually begins by accepting the invitation of Jesus. It begins from there. You can't really do this on your own. In fact, you can't do it on your own. And what I love that Jesus does when he goes up to Matthew is that his first words to Matthew are, follow me. It's not, hey, go fix yourself, right? Not, hey, like, go get things right and then come find me and then you can be a part of our community. But he recognizes that it's going to be a journey. That for Matthew, it was going to be a part of his life that was going to take a lifetime for him to learn. And so the question that I have this morning is, have you accepted the invitation to follow Jesus? And if you've never done that, you can do that for the first time today with a simple prayer. Nothing like, you know, crazy. You don't have to read like some long creed, really. But just say, Jesus, I'm choosing to follow you today. And I give you my full heart and my full life. Amen, right? That easy. The second thing that we can do is that creating a culture of Jesus actually requires repentance. It really requires repentance. It requires repentance here within my own heart, and it also requires uh, repentance within my own relationships with actual people. Now, this is really hard because tribalism is our default mode. And when it comes to my own uh, thoughts about people and my own actions towards people, there's a lot that I need to repent for. And I know that this is true. And you know what? Like, one of the things I have to constantly ask is, God, like, I don't have it within me to be able to repent to somebody that I find incredibly annoying. (laughs) But God says, like, there's something that the Holy Spirit does in my heart when I start to view people the way that Jesus views people, and that requires humility, when it requires that when I go up to somebody that I can't stand to say, you know what, you are someone that Jesus died for. And in that moment, and it sounds like kind of a hard word in our our language to think about this idea of repentance, but it really means a U-turn. And why I love what the Apostle Paul says, he says, take every thought captive. And what, I'm, what I love about that and how practical it is for this is in those moments when I look at somebody else and I see what they write, and I'm like, gosh, why are they this way? That I can take that thought captive 
and make a U-turn and submit it back to Christ and say, God, like you are gonna have to change my heart about this so that I can continue inviting that person to the table. I love how practical that is. And so my question is this, is there, there, is there a relationship that requires a humble U-turn in your life? Is there a relationship, a person, or maybe it's a group of people where you need to make a humble U-turn? And the last thing is this, is that creating a culture of Jesus is a journey of a thousand small choices towards philoxenia. We know that this is something that's incredibly difficult, but when you ask your question, how can I become more hospitable? How can I become more hospitable? How can I become more loving towards others in my hallway, online, in my workplaces? And how am I practicing a reverse hospitality? And I believe that this is something that can end up changing everything. And one of the ways it's really practical for me as I think about this is to ask ourselves kind of three questions. And those questions is this, am I a stepping stone, a stumbling block, or am I silent to Jesus? Am I a stepping stone, which means I'm actually helping people discover Jesus and removing hurdles? Am I a stumbling block in my thoughts, my attitudes, or my actions? Am I raising up hurdles that make it difficult for people to encounter Jesus? Or am I completely silent to Jesus? Maybe this comes out of a place of fear of saying, gosh, like my, my faith in Jesus is private. Like I just want to keep that to myself. And maybe Jesus is actually inviting you to invite other people to the table. And here's the beautiful thing. Because I know that when people listen to a message like this, they're like, Steve, that's great, right? You're, you're an eternal optimist, which I am. I'm an eternal optimist. But I would say that you are absolutely right that this is lofty. This is some pie in the sky if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. The truth is that we look at the early church and we knew that this was possible because Jesus resurrected and so they believed that what Jesus said was true. And because they believed what Jesus said was true, they knew that it was possible in their own life. And in a very small way, we got a chance to see this um, when I was a high school pastor. We had a small group of high school boys that were like freshmen. And, um, and one side of the group, they were so divided. One side of the group is what, they were like very academically driven and the other side was like, you know, not so much, but they were really popular, right? There was like a great documentary about this in the 80s called Revenge of the Nerds. And, um, and uh, we see these two big groups, right? And at one point, we were getting them together and everyone's like, hey, you know what? These guys are just so different. We just need to split them up. And there was a part of me that was kind of tempted to be like, hey, you're right. Like how we're gonna minister to, they were so different. But then I thought back to this passage and I was like, you know what? There'd be no way that Jesus would ever split this group because they need each other. And we stuck with it for four years and we kept coming to small groups every single week. And four years later, we were doing this retreat. We we're up at this lake house. And at the last thing that we do with the seniors, we just began affirming each other and we would just call it out. And we would let the students kind of speak into another student's life. It's beautiful. Everyone's crying. It's like nine hours long, by the way, right? And one of the cool things was that one of the students who was kind of from this like super popular Uber, you know, whatever, like super athletic group, said to another uh, student that was in the group that was completely opposite of him. And he said, you know what? At one point, they were thinking about splitting up this group. But I'm so glad they didn't. Because as, they, as, we got to, as I got to know you, I discovered that you're actually pretty cool. And that day I should have quit because it was like the highlight of like my entire pastoral career. But it was this beautiful image of just taking the risk of saying, you know what, we're gonna come at this year after year, week after week, because we know that what Jesus calls us to is possible. And if it's possible with a group of freshmen, it's possible right here. And if it's possible here, it's possible in our valley. If it's possible in our valley, maybe it's possible somewhere else, right? But maybe not all of California. But I love this. What I desire is for this to be true here. And so now we're gonna move into a response time. And as part of our practice, as we enter into a time of response, I want to take a minute 
where you can just pray. And I invite you to close your eyes and slow yourself down. Maybe you open up your hands as in a posture of receiving. But I just want to guide through this time real quick. And I'm just going to leave a minute as, as I walk through these reflection questions just to guide us through. So let's take a moment and just ask God to speak to you. Let's start with this first question. Have you accepted the call to follow Jesus with your whole life or only parts of it? So may the good news of your son, Jesus, cause us to expand our view for our neighbors, to expand our view of those with whom we live and work and play, so that we might become a community whose testimony is gospel-centered love. And now, if you've never put faith in Jesus, I want to invite you just to repeat after me today. And just in solidarity of anybody that's doing this, I'm going to invite everybody here to pray this along with me. But let's pray. Jesus, I give you my life. Today, I choose to trust you with all of my heart and fully embrace the life you have for me. 